The following audio is from Summit Church. For more information on Summit Church, visit www.summitonline.tv. Hey, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been about a month since we have been in the Gospel of Luke, but we are coming back around. I hope you had a wonderful 4th of July holiday. Maybe you got to see some family, some friends. You had celebrations, whatever that looked like. I hope it was wonderful, but we are kind of coming back in. It's the middle of the summer, but we are going to keep plugging through the Gospel of Luke because that's what we do as a church. We walk verse by verse through the Bible. And since it was a month ago, I want to remind you, we are in the middle of a sermon that Jesus is preaching. He's preaching a sermon about the end times, about his coming for a second time, his return back to earth. We're seeing that in this, it's hard to put any markers down and say, this is referring to this for sure, and this is going to happen at this point now, and that's going to bring this. It's hard to do that because apocalyptic literature is not written in that way. It's not meant to be markers or milestones in in the sand that we can look at and see and know exactly what's going to happen. As we said a month ago, what it is, is it's an encouragement to the saints, to those who claim Jesus. It's an encouragement for them to stay strong, to stay on mission, to stay on point. And just giving us the context again, Jesus is preaching this sermon, and it's really not a sermon, it's more of a conversation, but he's preaching it on the Mount of Olives. He's preaching it to his 12 disciples. There may have been a handful of others around, but it's really just to them. And he's going, hey, there's going to be a ton of stuff that you're going to start to hear about. A bunch of rumors. And then there's even going to be, after I'm gone, there's going to be a bunch of false prophets that pop up and they're going to start teaching. Some of them are even going to say they're me. Do not be deceived by that. Keep your focus. You have a mission. Whatever's going on in the world is not of your concern because your purpose is to take the good news of me, Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. That's your mission. That's your focus. That's all you need to be worried about. But, but, because I love you, I am going to give you some context here of things that are going to occur. And so we saw some of that a month ago. And then today, I do want to say it's pretty easy. It's pretty easy to know that what Jesus is referring to in the first few verses that we're going to look at, he is referring to a very dark event that we know now will take place in 70 AD. He's referring to the siege of Jerusalem and the ultimate destruction of the temple. He's referring to it in this to let his disciples know this is going to happen. You can't fathom it happening, but it will happen. And when it does, I need you to be ready for it. And I need you to know it's not the end of the world. It's not the end of the world. It's not that God has stopped being Lord of the universe. That's not what's happening at all. I need you to know that you still just stay the course. You stay strong in the midst of trials. And we know this, and you'll see from the context, you'll see from the scripture that it is probably referring to this. It's the one time where we can be decently confident that that's what Jesus is talking about. But as we do this, this passage or this message then becomes more of a history lesson. And while there's nothing wrong with history, we can learn a ton from history, you might be thinking, well, how am I going to apply a history lesson to my life? Well, it's more simple than you might think. 
You see, because just as God was moving and orchestrating and allowing things to happen in the first century, he's still moving. His hand is still upon us. And we can see in this passage, we can see his faithfulness if we just look close enough. We can see that he is still in control. And I believe that those are truths that we need for our life. I believe those are truths that we can apply today to your life and to mine. So as we read together, I want you to just kind of keep those rules in mind that this is meant to encourage you. It's meant to help you stay focused on the mission. And it's meant to ultimately let you see that God is in control and that Jesus is enough. So we begin with a prediction concerning a war in Judea on their home turf. Okay, so we would say it like this. There's going to be a war in Oklahoma. That's how we would say it. And that's what Jesus is letting his disciples know. There's going to be a war in your backyard. Luke chapter 21, verses 20 and 21. It says this, Jesus speaking. When you see Jerusalem, the city of God, the city of David, when you see it being surrounded by armies, when you see this happening, you will know that it's desolation. The city's desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea, in the entire region, let them flee to the mountains, run literally for the hills. Let those in the city get out as quick as possible before it's too late. And let those in the country, those who are already out, make sure they do not enter the city. Don't go back in. When you see the armies marching, It's not going to be good for Jerusalem. It's not going to be good for the whole region. You need to flee. You need to get out of Dodge. Now, as Jesus' disciples are listening to this, there's some Old Testament clues that Jesus is weaving into this message to help them understand even better what he's talking about. Specifically, the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 11, verse 31, it says this, His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifices. So the daily sacrifices that the priests make in the temple of God, that will be abolished. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. Those are some big words there. They will set up the abomination that causes desolation. Now, Daniel's prophecy was fulfilled. It was already fulfilled. It was fulfilled about 200 years before Jesus was speaking these words. In 167 BC, Antiochus Epiphanes, okay, strong name, Antiochus Epiphanes, he led the Syrian army into Jerusalem. They surrounded the city. They sacked the city. It was awful in that time. In 167, things were not good for Jerusalem. There's a book in the Apocrypha called 1 Maccabees. If you have a Catholic Bible, it's in your Bible. In in our Bible, it's not in there, but it's called 1 Maccabees. In the first chapter of 1 Maccabees, and then a little bit in chapter 6, here's what it says. So it's not going to be on the screen. You're not going to see it, but this is from an apocryphal writing. It says this. It tells us that many, 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 many people, when Antiochus surrounded Jerusalem, they were murdered. Many worshipers were killed. Antiochus allowed his troops, and this is PG-13, he allowed his troops to fornicate in the temple itself. 
So in the temple, they were doing things that you shouldn't do in the temple. And then here's the most heinous act of all. Finally, what they did is they sacrificed or slaughtered a pig on the altar. The altar of God. Now, to us, we're like, that's, that's not as bad as the, the, the other thing you mentioned. But a pig was a very unclean animal, not allowed near the temple of God. And to sacrifice an unclean animal on the altar of God, there's nothing more disrespectful. There's nothing more belittling that, that he could have possibly done than this act. That was the abomination that caused the desolation of the temple. Antiochus was not pulling any punches. He came in to not just crush, but to destroy the people of God. That was his mission. Now, this destruction in 167 BC is what the hearers of Jesus' message would have been thinking about. But as we see it, as we see what Jesus speaks three times, he says, let those, let those who are there do this. Let those who are there do this. The phrase let those is unique because it has a meaning of understanding. Let those who are here see and understand what's happening so that they can run. And hopefully they will realize that what's coming is really, really, really bad. And Jesus is telling his disciples, we don't know how many of his disciples were still alive in 70 AD, but the chances are many of them, even though they would have been advanced in years, many of them probably were still alive, many living in that area. And so he's saying, when you see this, run. When you tell your children about this, tell them to flee. We know, we know because we have 2,000 years of history to look back at, that these events unfolded exactly, exactly the way Jesus described them. They unfolded in 70 AD because a general, a Roman general named Titus, he came in and learning from his Syrian counterpart, he did the exact same thing. The destruction of the temple was complete. The famine that they caused because they cut off supply lines into the city was horrific. The death toll in 70 AD was unthinkable. But, but, the Christians who listened to the warning of Jesus, somewhere around 30 AD is where we're at right now, the Christians who listened to his warning and believed Jesus, and they ran, they were saved, they were spared. So Jesus is showing grace and mercy by letting his disciples know, this is coming, this is coming. I'm not just prophesying, I'm letting you know, this is going to happen. And then he gives some specific instructions. Luke chapter 21, verses 22 through 24. The reason this is going to happen is this is a time of punishment. And it's in fulfillment of all that has been written. The Old Testament has warned against this. The entire Old Testament has warned against this. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to many nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Jesus 
in these instructions is actually giving the why. Why would this be allowed to happen? Well, the religious elite have brought this on themselves. Jesus came and for three years he preached love. He taught truth, the truth which they rejected. So much so that the religious elite ultimately killed him. That will happen here in just a few days. They will crucify Jesus because they don't like what he has to say. God, the Father, will have none of it. But this isn't a vengeful God. This isn't a God who's just wanting to see people slaughtered to see them slaughtered. No, it's not vengeance. It's discipline, church. It's discipline for the people that he loves. God only disciplines those that he loves. He hopes for their reconciliation. He hopes to make the relationship right. Therefore, he disciplines. He wants to see life change. And sometimes you got to get people's attention in unique ways. And sometimes the only way to get their attention is to truly pull the carpet out from underneath their feet. But don't miss this. Don't miss the why. God demands to see a change in those that he loves. He won't leave us where we're at. And so in this particular instance, when Jerusalem had fallen so far away from him and so far away from his will, he orchestrates a means for which that change can possibly occur. And as crazy as it sounds, that's the destruction of a city. But those that Jesus is teaching, his disciples, they can't fathom this. There's no way, there's no way that God would do this. And Josephus, a first century historian, he actually writes about how many false prophets rose up during the siege of Jerusalem. They rose up declaring that God has guaranteed us victory. He will never, ever allow us to be defeated at the hands of these Gentiles, these pagans. He will lead us to victory. And multiple people followed these false prophets, even though Jesus himself said, this is going to happen and it's not going to end well. Multiple people ran straight into their death following people who had no idea what they were talking about. And they did so because they could never fathom that God would allow this city to fall. They had confidence and faith in the wrong thing. They were missing the one who could truly bring hope. And Jesus is gently reminding his disciples in hopes that they would remind others, hey, at the end of the day, trust only in me. All you need is me. So at the end of the day, trust only in me. Now, God's not just going to allow this horrific event to occur and not provide some kind of redemption, some kind of salvation for those. So a Savior is brought through this suffering and brought to end this suffering. Now, Mark 13, 24 adds something important, I think, just chronologically. So I just want to read the first itty-bitty bit of verse 24. It says, but in those days following that distress. But in those days following the distress that Jesus has just spoken about, those days simply translates then. So after this distress, then, then, these events will happen. No markers in time. It's not April 14th, 64 BC. It's not that. It's after these events, then 
here's what's going to happen. Heaven will respond with a Savior. Luke 21, 25 through 28. There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. The cosmos, the cosmos will be your sign. On earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexed at the roaring and tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world. How did Jerusalem just fall? How is that possible? It will cause great trepidation. For the heavenly bodies, they'll be shaken. At that time, at that time, when all chaos seems to be breaking loose, at that time, they will see the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus, coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, here's what you do. You stop running. You stand up. You lift up your head because your redemption is drawing near. Your Savior is coming to save because God never forsakes us. He never forgets us. He's been orchestrating His plan from the beginning of time and His redemptive plan is His Son, Jesus. And you see Him and you lift up your head and you rejoice because redemption is drawing near. Now, if you're like me, you're like, what about the sun and the moon? Why, why is he talking about the sun and the moon? Is the sun going to explode when Jesus returns? Is the moon going to whatever? No, that's all from the Old Testament, that Jesus is doing something that any good preacher would do. He's drawing from illustrations that the people he's teaching would understand and know. Joel chapter 2, Joel chapter 3, Isaiah 13, they all talk about the sun and the moon and the stars, and they are prophecies that involve the return of Jesus. They're messianic prophecies that the cosmos will usher in. How will it play out? I'm not completely sure. But I do know this. These events, these events that transpire are the disillusion of the cosmos because it's in terror and confusion over what's going on. But then they see the overwhelming might of the Lord. And even the stars and the moon shudder just a little bit. When he shows up in all of his majesty to exact judgment on those who have been against him, to bring salvation to those who are for him and ultimate redemption to the world, because ultimately he will come and he will redeem it all to himself, bring it back to the Garden of Eden. That's going to happen. We will all know at that moment, whether you've trusted in him with your life or not, we will all know that he is Lord. Now, it's important to note, because this is prophetic literature, no specific signs are given, no preliminary signs. So, so like, you can't say, oh, Jesus is coming back on the clouds of glory uh, when this happens. At this moment, at this time, we can't know that. It just simply highlights the glory of the event, how beautiful it will be when Jesus returns. Because Jesus returning means salvation. For those who have received the gospel, who have stood true through the trials, they will be gathered no matter where they are on earth to be with their Savior. That will be a day. That will be a beautiful, beautiful day. And Jesus finishes by coming full circle with a parable. 
I think, coming back to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. He says this in Luke 21, 29-31. He told him this parable. Look at the fig tree. Look at all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourself and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you will know that the kingdom of God is near. I don't think he's talking about the cosmos anymore. I think he's coming back around to saying, when you see the armies coming, you'll know the kingdom of God is near. You'll know that God is still moving. You need to be ready for this. You need to make sure you run. Because I don't want you. I don't want you to be caught in the city. I want you to be able to continue your mission. I want you to be able to save your own life and carry on. I want you to be able to do that. So when you see these things start to happen, remember what I said. Tell others about what I said. Make sure that you carry on. And the reason I think that is because the kingdom of God is not near when Jesus returns on a cloud of glory. The kingdom of God is here. It's done. I think that one word lets us know he's going back to the destruction of the temple. I told you it'd be a history lesson. But even with history lessons, I think we can, I think we can learn something. I think we can do something with this passage. So what do we do with it? What do we do with this? I, I, I see a few things that actually bring me great hope. I see them right here in the words of Jesus. No better words to learn from. The first thing I see is that if we, me and you, if we will listen to God, he will lead and guide us through and sometimes even around the trials of this world. Now, I said that very intentionally. James tells us to consider it pure joy when we face trials of any kind. I think most of the time, God wants us to walk with him through our trials. But in this instance, the destruction of Jerusalem, he goes, I don't need you to go through that. You'll be killed. I need you to be warned about it. I need you to go around that trial so that you can live on the other side. I, so God, I think, does this from time to time. I think he will help us avoid a trial in our life, avoid a cataclysmic failure in our life. I think he'll help us if we will listen, if we will be with him, if we will walk with him and talk with him and truly humble ourselves before him and know that he is God and we are not. And we don't know what's best always for our own life, but he does. I think he will lead us through our trials. He'll be there with us. I think sometimes he'll even help us go around those trials so that we don't have to face them if we'll just listen. That's the first thing I saw. The second thing I saw is that God disciplines us when we step out of line. He does this because he cares for us, because he loves us. If you're going through something right now, church, if you're going through something that makes you feel like you're in a really tough season and maybe God doesn't care that much about you, I want you to ask yourself a question. I think this is a very important question. I want you to ask yourself this. What is God trying to do in my life? It's a tough question to ask when you feel like you're flat on your back in misery. But I want you to ask yourself, what is God trying to do in my life right now? And then ask yourself, would you be willing to surrender to him, to his will? And would you let him do the work in you that he's wanting to do? Because I know this, I know this, church. It's completely true. He cares about you. He cares about you and loves you enough to not let you stay where you are. 
So if you feel like he couldn't care less, I say this with great love, you're wrong. He cares so much that he's not going to let you stay in your mess. And discipline is sometimes the means by which he pulls us out of our muck and our mire. And finally, the third thing that I learned from this passage, God will always win in the end. God wins. That's why Jesus goes to the ultimate redemption in this passage that I think is mostly just talking about what will happen in 70 AD. He goes, he jumps to the end and goes, hey, one day I'll be coming back on a cloud and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I know that's going to happen. God always wins in the end. Heaven and earth are his. We have no need, church, to worry. No matter what the landscape of the world looks like, and I'll be honest, it's not pretty right now. No matter what it looks like, though, God is in control. Jesus is enough. The victory in your life is sealed with his blood. He's got you. He loves you so much that he won't let you stay there. So, choose today, church, to hitch your wagon to the one who always wins. Decide to serve and obey and love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength because he first loved you. And he has a plan for you, a purpose for your life, a mission for you that will not only bring you redemption, justification before God, it won't just bring that, it will bring you full and abundant life. A life that he paid a high price for, the price of his son. I see in this passage so much hope. And I pray that today you will see that same hope and you will embrace it because his name is Jesus. Father, thank you so much for your son. Thank you so much for the hope and the truth that we have in you. When we are walking through trials, when we are walking through discipline, when we're walking through hurt, when the world seems so upside down, remind us, God, that you are in control, that your son is enough. Give us grace sufficient for all of our needs every single day. Let us walk with you. Let us look more like you. And thank you, thank you for coming to this world, coming to this life, coming into my mess to save, to redeem, to restore, to renew, and to grow. We thank you, Father, for all that you do, and we give you all the glory. It's in the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.